Well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you, I'll introduce myself. My name is David Thies, and I'm one of the elders here at, the, uh, at All Souls. And I have the privilege today of bringing our sermon message to you. Uh, the title of the sermon today is Suffering. If it's all the same to you, God, I'd just as soon not. Uh, the grammar doesn't quite work there, but I think you get the point. Uh, and in, in using that as a title, we borrow, I think, from the American author Mark Twain, who writes of the man who, having been tarred and feathered and then ridden out of town on a rail, was heard to exclaim, if it weren't for the honor of the thing, I'd just as soon walk. <laughs> and that's kind of the way we feel when we confront the suffering uh, that is inevitable in our lives, and we'll talk about what that means. Uh, our text today is from the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Uh, it's in chapter 5, and it's verses 3 through 5. Before I read that, uh, let's pray just for a moment. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, would you now give us the guidance that you promise us in the gift of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds and hearts to understand and to apply what you have for us in your holy scriptures, your true holy scriptures. Would you bless this time, bless my words that nothing I would say would contradict your word. As Father, in your word we find eternal truth, we find an unchanging reality that we can take great comfort in and find hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I suppose that the most common argument I've heard from people who are either non-believers or who are believers and are questioning their, their faith relates to the reality of suffering. General suffering that we find in the world, it's just all around us, but also and often more, more uh, particularly in the suffering that we encounter in our own lives. The question that people ask sometimes goes like this, if, if the God that I'm to worship is both all-powerful and all-loving, why would such a God allow suffering of any type to take place? And it's a fair question, especially if we understand who this God is that we've come this morning to worship. Why on the one hand, would a being that is capable of anything allow suffering to take place? From the point of view of our theology, it's certainly true that God has revealed himself to be loving. We know that. So loving that he saved us for an eternity with him at a great cost. Is such a love not capable of shielding humanity from all forms of suffering? And if it is, then why does humankind suffer? It gets even harder when we go beyond the theology and consider our own circumstance. Knowing God to be personal, that is not just knowing all, but knowing me and knowing you, and then facing the suffering that we all experience, it might be appropriate for me to question whether or not God is completely committed to me or is 
ours just an on-again, off-again relationship that somehow depends upon forces that are outside the control of God, maybe even outside the control that I have. And so, in fairness to the legitimacy of the question raised by the non-believer and in recognition of the reality that we all suffer from time to time, in today's sermon, all aspects of suffering go under the microscope, including how we should respond to it when it happens. Now our context is the message of Paul to the Romans. That's what we find in the fifth chapter. Let me read those three verses. Paul says to the Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's the promise of suffering. Now, we might think that it's pretty audacious for Paul to claim that suffering will happen, but more than that, that we should rejoice when it happens. I mean, what right does he have to come into my world and define the reaction I should have to what is a very real circumstance I might be facing here and, and now? Well, it's true, though, that whatever the nature of the suffering is that we face, God calls us to rejoice. And I'm here to tell you that that's not an emotion that comes easy to me uh, in the middle of the trenches of ordinary life. What's that all about? I've outlined the way we're going to look at this today. Uh, you'll find it on the back of your, your uh, bulletin uh, in three different sections. First of all, do we suffer at all? What is suffering? Maybe we're defining it incorrectly and it never really happens to the washed among us. Maybe there is a way to avoid suffering, or maybe not. Uh, we, may be, and we may have a tendency to define suffering in a way that attaches it to the sins of other people. You know, I suffer because other people are mean to me. And if we do it that way, while it's certainly true that that is one type of suffering that we face, there's a whole world of other kinds of things that we face that really come right back to our own doing or our own thinking. So it's a more complicated thing. Second in our outline is if we suffer, then why do we suffer? What possible purpose could God have in allowing us to go through the suffering that we face? And then finally, our third point, if we suffer, what is the result of that suffering? What should come out of it? What should we learn? So let's start with the question of whether or not we suffer in the way that Paul is talking about in this letter. Well, from one perspective, that's an easy question to answer. Do you suffer? If you're honest with yourself, you're gonna say, yes, I do. I know I, I do. Each of us in the room knows that we suffer. If you don't recognize the slings and arrows that come your way, the conflict that sometimes embroils you as suffering, then you're really not paying attention. You're deluding yourself into thinking that you're not one of those people that has to face, face this. I want, however, to make this question a little bit harder than just talking about the suffering that comes our way because of the actions or thoughts of other people. I want to include in the definition of suffering the kinds of things that are our own doing 
Now, it would be easy to have the arrogance, I'll call it that, when I think of the way I look at it. I don't call it that way in the way the psalmist looked at, looked at it, but in the text that Bonnie read for us, we read the psalmist saying, basically, protect me from the suffering that comes from, from other people. And that's, in my way of looking at it, when I do that, that's an arrogance because it says that that's the only source of my suffering. In a way, it's kind of easy to deal with that kind of suffering because it's not my fault. I have a real problem, though, when I face things that come into my life because of things that I have done. The psalmist says in the passage that, that Bonnie read, there are evil forces at work that cause my suffering and I need protection. Uh, and that is certainly a legitimate thing to worry about. He says, look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget the law. He's saying, I'm okay, these other folks are not. And that's a real feeling, and it's a truth. That happens. But when I call that feeling when I think that way arrogant, it's because I often think that's the only kind of suffering that I face. Yes, there are many aspects of my suffering that I do not cause, especially when my suffering is because of my faith. And that happens. People look down on you because of the belief system that you have that, and when we call ourselves Christian. But as we agonize over the whys and wherefores of real suffering we go through, let's not forget that much is the result of our own thoughts and actions. We sin, we fail, we make mistakes, we find ourselves in circumstances that are our own doing, and we suffer. And that's just as much the kind of suffering that Paul is promising to us. So in a way he's saying, how should we approach not just suffering caused by others, the martyrdom approach, but also how should we face the kind of suffering that is inevitable in the life of any believer uh, in this world, some of it caused by ourselves. So as we look at this text, let's consider the entire universe of suffering. And I'm supposed to rejoice in that? That's the hard thing. Now, the types of suffering there are in the world, there have been many ex explanations for over the years. Non-Christian philosophers, for example, spoke as if suffering was inevitable uh, in life, and the antidote to suffering is just fill up your life with as much of the good things that can happen to you, and you'll find it easier to ignore the bad things. That's sort of the hedonist, you know, self-medicating kind of approach to the suffering that we have. Uh, do what for today makes me feel better so that my suffering won't get the better for me. Another way that the non-believer philosopher looked at suffering was to use what uh, James Boyce calls the stiff upper lip approach. We suffer, get through it. And that's another approach to suffering. In other words, it's inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. You just need to get beyond it to explore the better things of life. Well, these approaches acknowledge the reality of suffering in our lives, but go no further to explain why we face it. We agree that suffering is real, but find the inevitability of it an inadequate explanation if we are thinking people. It depresses me to think that it's just out there and there's no basis for it, there's no reason for it, there's no one who has allowed it into my life for some greater purpose. We've acknowledged the existence of a personal God who loves us and seeks an eternal relationship with us. 
So now we have to go to the second part of the outline because having so acknowledged the existence of God, we can ask him, why does this happen? Why do these things come into my life? For what purpose have you decided not to protect me from these sufferings? What does God have in mind? His all-powerful nature allows for the possibility that he could give you and me a life that has no suffering in it. His eternal and perfect plan must therefore place our suffering into a context that explains his purposes. What are they? At this point, in the middle of this second point of our talk today, it's worth putting our text into the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. What's he doing there and how might this explanation of suffering relate to what he's trying to say in the bigger picture to the Romans? Well, we might say, I like to say, that the entire book of the Romans is a lawyer's book of the Bible. It's an explanation for what it means to be a Christian. It's called a book for lawyers because it's kind of a legal document, although it's an unusual legal document. It explains, it explains how it is God has accomplished his ultimate purpose for my life, but it's unique because it says it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with his determination that he wants to spend eternity with me. It leads to the conclusion that there's nothing that I can do to achieve my own salvation, my own eternity with God. And its ultimate message is that what saves us is the grace of God manifested in us as we have faith. This is an explanation of how God works not how I work. It's, and that's very counterintuitive for a lawyer who wants to see, you know, how do I get from point A to point B and let me help somebody, my client, get there. Well, read with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are therefore assured of our salvation because it's God doing it, it's not me. And in the beginning of the fifth chapter, the one that is our text for today, Paul seems to anticipate and then answer a question. The question is this. Is God's method for providing salvation that I'm now convinced is for me, it's God giving me salvation at no cost to myself, it's, an entirely, it's entirely a thing that's up to Him. If that method is providing to me salvation, is the method that He has chosen safe? Will I be able to hold on to the end? Can I stand up to the trials of life? See, He's saying on the one hand, you are assured of salvation. The beginning of chapter 5 then uses one of those phrases, therefore. So having been assured of our salvation, therefore what? And then there are a series of questions. This is the first one. And it is, if you've given me salvation and you are all powerful, and I know that there are sufferings that I face in this world, how am I to get through them? Is this method that you're using of getting me to heaven uh, the best thing you could come up with, God? It's kind of what he's anticipating as the question. In other words, the fact that we have trials and tribulations in our lives is not, in fact, evidence of the failure of God's plan. That's what he then goes on to want us to understand. He hasn't given us the second best plan. It's his perfect plan for our salvation. And the answer to the question is yes. I'm going to make it possible for you to endure the sufferings that you face, even the sufferings that you bring into your life. But that doesn't make it easy. We now know that there is salvation, there is suffering, and that God somehow has made that suffering part of his plan for our life. But we still crave an explanation 
We've got God in the crosshairs right now. And everyone in the room, because you've been persuaded that we all suffer, every one of us is asking the same question. God, why? Why does this have to happen? Paul answers the question, as I said, with a resounding yes, you can hold up to the, until the end. And it's because I have made this part of my perfect plan, and you can know that, that you will be able to endure and, in fact, accomplish great things in the midst of your suffering. This is the reason that he makes endurance throughout our sufferings possible, not just possible, but worthy of rejoicing. James Boyce summarizes God's purposes for our suffering, in other words, the wise, with four points. He calls our suffering either corrective, or secondly, for God's glory, or thirdly, part of a cosmic warfare that is ongoing, or lastly, constructive. Corrective, for God's glory, part of a cosmic warfare that is ongoing, or that is constructive. Let's quickly look at each of those. It's corrective, sometimes, because we humans, even believing humans, fall from the path of righteousness that God has made possible through the gift of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The ultimate solution to our sin has been given, but we still live as, we, as if we have not yet died to the flesh. We suffer to get us back on the right path when our suffering is corrective. Now, knowing this is possibly a reason for reflection upon why it is God may have allowed suffering into our lives. Perhaps there's a reason for repentance or a change in the path that you or I, what, that we're walking. Now, another type of suffering that Boyce calls uh, is, is a suffering that is strictly for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Now, this is a hard one for the human because it in a way has nothing to do with specifically what you're going through at the moment. It's possible that what you're going through is just to allow God to have it there in your life and have it work in your life and have you respond to it in your life in the context of your faith so that he will receive the glory. When our earthly suffering is cured, however, is fixed in an earthly way, that's an easier way to look at this. In other words, if I have an illness and I pray real hard that God cure me, I believe in a God who can cure me, and if I get cured, pretty easy to give the glory to God in that case. It's easy to embrace the possibility that fixed problems, fixed in an earthly way, are from God, and we can give God thanks for that. But it's equally true that sometimes God allows suffering into our lives to lead to His glory when things don't get fixed in the way that we would like them to be fixed. It might be an illness or a financial setback or a failure in an academic career. When those kinds of things are allowed into our lives and they don't get cured the way I would like them to be cured, then I still may be part of a ongoing uh, plan of God to bring glory to himself because sometimes problems or suffering are, are cured ultimately. When I'm in heaven with God and I look back over a life that included suffering, knowing what I know when I'm there and I'm in a glorified state, my suffering on earth pales uh, in, in perspective.
some problems are not completely solved until we get to heaven, and we need to understand that. And if we understand that, we'll see that some things that happen to us happen so that God can bring glory to himself. Testing and approving God's perfect will for our life, as Paul calls us to in the 12th chapter of Romans, is the way we handle this. When God has allowed a type of suffering into our lives, will you change it? If it is God's will that it not change? That's a hard thing for us to accept. It means that we have to see our circumstances not in the context of our human existence and our emotions and our desires and our wants, but in the context of God's perfect will for our life. If we see it that way, then we will understand how through our suffering God might be bringing glory to ourselves. Thirdly, our suffering might be part of a cosmic warfare that is so much bigger than any of our problems. It's a continuation of the battle between good and evil, between God and the devil that God has already won, but that continues to play out in our lives. Boyce speculates, for example, that for every believer who is suffering from a particular form of cancer, there is also a non-believer in exactly the same condition, and that the Christian praises and worships God in spite of his afflictions, while the unbeliever curses God and bitterly resents his faith. God is showing that the purpose of life lies in a right relationship with him, not in pleasant circumstances. For every Christian, says Boyce, who loses a son or a daughter, there's a non-Christian who experiences the same thing. For every Christian who loses a job, there's a non-Christian in like circumstances. This is the ultimate reason for the drama of history, says Boyce, is to acknowledge the bigger picture that might be going on, to glorify, to worship, and uh, to enjoy God even in the midst of whatever trial you may be facing. Finally, we read that uh, there is such a thing as constructive suffering. All of life is a journey, and each of us is headed through and to circumstances that have been allowed by God. Through our suffering, God prepares us for what is to come. Now, the challenge here is that while the present reality of our circumstance can't be denied, it's, it's what you know it to be, God's future objectives for our lives, his plan for using our suffering, cannot always be discerned or much less understood. It's easy, and how many of us have looked back over our lives when we get to a certain point and figured out what God was up to all along? Oh, and now I understand why 30 years ago I was in this place, or this door closed to me, or I achieved this great success, or whatever it is. 30 years later, it's easy to look back and see what God has for you to do. Not so easy when you're in the midst of a suffering today that may be preparing you for something down the road. I suspect that everybody in here understands this phenomenon. So, yes, there is suffering in our lives, and God has explained why he uses suffering. So that's the answer to our second point, why suffer, and now for the third and final point, a very practical point. It allows us to examine exactly what we're going through now, and then look to see what God might be intending as the result of our suffering. Now our text provides the answer to the question of what the result of our suffering should be as it plays out in our lives. And here I'm not talking in generalities as I was in the second section that asked why suffer, bring glory to God, 
correct something, whatever. I'm talking now about how God does that. How does he prepare me? How does he use the suffer, suffering that is in my life? Now I want to see how that works. What about who I am or who you are should change as we suffer so that God's purposes can be achieved? Well, the text says that as we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is, has been given to us. So what Paul's doing is starting out by giving us a tool, a tool that can be used. It's called perseverance or patience or endurance. In other words, if we are to get out of our suffering what God intends, we need to embrace it, to live it, to breathe it in. Don't be like Jonah and run from the suffering God called him to endure. Hit it head on. This is one of the problems caused by the view that if we only pray hard enough or sincere enough, our problems will all go away. You see, God is capable of removing our suffering from us, but to see the removal of the suffering as the only thing God may be up to eliminates the possibility of all that God is trying to accomplish through what you're going through. So embrace the difficulty that God has allowed into your life and persevere. Yes, pray that it be taken out of your life. God calls on us to do that, and he may take it out of your life, but he may not. And don't be eternally disappointed if that happens. Now, as we persevere, Paul says we will change. First, we will have character. I see an illustration of this in my profession. I'm a lawyer. I've practiced law for almost 40 years. And I've seen people face problems over and over again. Sometimes the same people facing the same problem. Now, sometimes that's because they just don't get it. But often, as they face the same problem over and over, like a business that goes through the same kind of difficulty at different times, people accumulate experience and judgment. And, and it's a little bit like the character that Paul is talking about here. If we persevere through our problem, through our suffering, we will develop a Christian kind of character that allows us to have the right perspective as we face the suffering. It will prepare us better to, yes, be happy in an earthly kind of way if the suffering goes away, and yet to rejoice, to use Paul's word, even if the suffering doesn't go away, and that's hard. As I persevere through my difficulty, I develop that way of understanding things. This doesn't happen when I try to get my, to my solution as quickly as possible without acknowledging that God might be trying to accomplish something. So as I persevere and I develop a Christian approach or character, I find myself looking at my suffering in a much different way. Paul says that endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now that's either the most ridiculous or the most uplifting of the statements Paul is making to the Romans. Yes, you might think it's crazy to see in your suffering a reason for hope. But if you understand where this discussion began, with the reality that your eternity has been secured by virtue of God's work on the cross, you then see that he brings us full circle from that certain hope of salvation to the hope that is described in the context of our suffering. 
There's no uncertainty about what God has done. How he wants to use your suffering is sometimes unclear, but that he will use your suffering for his good purposes, that's also clear and certain. And this allows for hope and ultimately the glorification of God. So, there is suffering in the world and it's suffering that each of us face, different types, but we all go through it. Even as we talk about it here today, I hope you're thinking about what you're facing right now. Knowing that God has a reason, maybe several, for allowing suffering into your life will help. It won't make it easy. It isn't what you want. He says it's okay to tell him what you want. But ultimately knowing that he'll use it for his glory is a good thing. So embrace your suffering, challenge it, fight it, but don't run from it and God will use it for his good purposes, as hard as it may seem. Let's rejoice in our sufferings. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take each of our minds to the place you want them to be at this precise moment in history, for you know what we face, you know what you've allowed into our lives. We worship you, a God who is capable of doing anything, including uh, removing suffering from our lives. And yet we understand, as Paul taught, that that is not always the way it works. So strengthen us. Give us the boldness to, em to, to, to embrace and to fight and to challenge and to try to change. And yet to ultimately understand, Father, that as we suffer, uh, your purposes are being accomplished. And in that there is certainty, and we find hope for which we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.